Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the albumreview.net podcast. I'm Greg Potters. Thanks to all you listeners out there for your interaction and feedback. Your feet, come on, you know the drill. Let's go, everybody together. Your feedback is much appreciated and it helps me to always improve. We've now embarked on the next journey, which is 2023. As I mentioned in the last episode, I'm grateful for my friends, my family, and excited for all the new music I get to share with you guys in this new year. For today's episode, this will continue our special treat. This is part two of a two-part episode where I am again joined by singer-songwriter-musician Jason Myrick. If you haven't heard part one of this review yet, you should go back and listen, but... To review, Jason is a singer-songwriter who hails from the Buffalo, New York area. He's a friend and fellow musician, and he was a guest on episode 27 of the podcast where he and I had a lengthy discussion about his debut album, Best Way to Be Free. So after you listen to both parts one and two of this episode, go back and listen to episode number 27 to hear more of Jason's music and his journey. So continuing the special edition to this review, we are going to celebrate the remixed, recut, super deluxe release of the Beatles' 1966 masterpiece, Revolver. Giles Martin, the son of original Revolver producer George Martin, remixed this album, adding hours of outtakes, rare cuts, conversations, and additional tracks taken from the 1966 recording sessions. In total, the Super Deluxe issue, which came out on October 28, 2022, consists of five discs. Yes, five. So today we're going to play you parts of the unfinished outtakes of several songs taken from that 2022 remix before they were completed. Then we'll play you a clip of the final version to hear how the songs transformed into what they eventually became. And in between there, as we did in the last episode, Jason and I will uh, wax poetic about everything we know and feel about this Beatles album. So without further ado, please enjoy part two of this two-part episode, our review of the Beatles Revolver. Moving on to uh, the next song I wanted to talk about, And Your Bird Can Sing. So, Jason, I think this is a really a happy kind of sing-along tune that it moves swiftly. Uh, it's got a double guitar melody. It just kind of makes you smile. You tell me that you've got a thing you want And your bird can sing But you don't get me You don't get me You can't see me When your possessions Start to weigh you down Look in my direction I'll be round I'll be round You tell me that you've heard Every sound there is And your bird can swing But you can't The guitar parts were played separately by George and Paul. The song was originally written by Lennon, and then there's um, instrument credits and some writing credits to Paul. Originally, John called it, You Don't Get Me, but he later changed it. Apparently, John never fully revealed the origin of the lyrics. There are many theories, too many to mention here, and frankly, they sounded pretty far-fetched to me, Jay, but... The band originally recorded the song in kind of a less produced style, more free-flowing, like a like a bird song. The band, the birds. Um, but the the use of the dual two guitars harmonizing here, I wanted to touch upon that. Um, and your bird can sing wasn't something 
many bands had done up through 1966 using the harmonizing guitars. So this approach, it was really revolutionary. Once again, another revolutionary thing on Revolver. If you listen to a lot of music, Jason, uh, uh, the, the decade in the 1970s, you got bands like the Allman Brothers, Leonard Skinnerd. They wrote and recorded a bunch of songs that use kind of double harmonizing guitars. And then there were bands like Boston. They also became famous for this, or I shouldn't say that. These bands were also bands that did a really good job of harmonizing guitars. Boston, right. and then one of my favorite heavy metal bands, Iron Maiden, who formed in the, both bands formed in the 1970s. But the the... The double guitars, the dueling harmonizing, just not something that you really heard on a lot of music before this. I, I don't know if you picked up on this, Jason, or if that's something that, that caught your your ear. Yeah, I feel like that sound, when you hear it, you just, it's within the context of the song. I don't think you pay a lot of attention to it, but now that you're you're bringing it out, it does, it's hard to think about it without those two guitars. And right. I feel like, and you brought up the Let It Be documentary, right? Yep. I feel like I always... As a younger guy, I always attributed all the lead guitar parts as being George. But Same. watching that documentary kind of mesmerized at what John was doing and those those riffs and the, the different lead fills that he was doing. And then to hear that happen where they're overdubbing or they're playing those together, it, it is cool and it is groundbreaking. I think that's a really solid point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it made me go back and listen to a lot more Almond Brothers and Skinner too, and just sort of appreciate that again. And I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of why I like, you know, you hear the beginning of, of Jessica and it's two guitars literally harmonizing. Right. Um, they're, you kind of think they're playing the same thing, but they're not. They're both playing, but they're just, both of them are just in a little bit of a different, a different, yeah. um, a different key, but they they play so well together, you know. Yeah. No. I did, and with this, it, you know, there's the your bird can sing, and it it's the controversy there, and I'm sure that as people listen to this podcast, we'll get comments, and you know, to get us more facts and the backstory here, but the whole the uh, the kind of the tension between John and Paul. And this was, you know, again, just directed at kind of if the meaning was never given, the people who were like trying to decipher every single thing that John was saying right. to say that he was actually, you know, using this song as a vehicle to completely, you know, dig, <laughs> take it <laughs> at Paul. I think, I think, yeah, so we're getting to that point again. We talked about it earlier, but there's really that tension kind of like bubbling up and you can hear it and they're, right. you know, so. Uh, but you could read everybody's interpretations a little bit different. But sure. um, to me, as a younger guy, and even listening to it now, if I don't think about it at all, I'm just like tapping my foot, like you're totally. saying. Yeah, it's just a great. It's a two-minute song. Two yeah. minutes, one second. I'm like, come on now. I'm always, I'm always. I, I picture myself in my car, just like the only part I really belt out is me, like just <laughs> waiting for that part. And then... right. yeah. no, I got you. That's I. I get it. <laughs> oh man um yeah, it's almost like you don't want to know if it's really supposed to be that yeah you know, exactly much of a dig but interesting <laughs> There's another song I wanted to touch upon for no one. Hopefully I got that name right. This is a primarily a, a McCartney song, uh, but like many tracks, John also collaborated with Paul as most of the songs were credited to, you know, Jason, as you know, Lennon McCartney. 
Take nine. combines chamber music and a little bit of McCartney pop. I kind of use that term. Definitely a radio song. This track is also notable. I mean, look, look, they're all radio songs, but like this one, you know, going back to 1966 is definitely more radio friendly than the Ravi Shankar track that George wrote. For No One is, is notable because of its French horn solo, which I thought was really cool. It's played halfway through and then again towards the end. And I did some reading they recruited this guy named Alan Civil, who is a member of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, and he was a session soloist and actually the first non-German invited to join the Berlin Orchestra. So again, this is just this is who they're having play on this album, quite a bit different from previous albums. Civil, Alan Civil would actually also play an orchestra part on A Day in the Life, uh, which as many know was off their following album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and a favorite of, I think, most Beatle fanatics. Paul said that he he wrote this song in the bathroom of his hotel room at a ski resort in Switzerland. And the song ends with Paul singing A Love That Should Have Lasted Years, which uh, he noted was a reference to his then-girlfriend Jane Asher, who was a, a London-born actor. Or Do we say actress? I, I've noticed that a lot of use a lot of use of the word actress is kind of diminished and we just do act i don't know what do you think, yeah, I, think so. <laughs> I think so yeah we can't say actress anymore it's been deleted from the english language so actor jane asher to get a little sentimental for a minute i i always think of my mom when i listen to this song i i i haven't addressed it in this review yet but my mom was i did a little bit earlier my mom was a huge beatles fan she saw him she saw him at Shea in 66, and she really introduced me to the band when I was a little kid. And um, like I was saying earlier, Jason, I, I can remember songs like I Want to Hold Your Hand and Can't Buy Me Love. And honestly, man, they didn't really resonate with me. Like, I, I mean, it just seemed too, it seemed too cheeky, too poppy. Um, but I always had respect, and I was always interested in the fact I was like, wow, my mom really likes you know, uh, this certain group. It, she doesn't really talk about many others, but she really, really shows a specific interest. And of course she had like all of their albums, but it wasn't maybe like you, I don't know. It, you you probably got way into them a lot, a lot younger than I did. But when I got older, maybe in my teenage years, that's when I heard everything else, you know, Sgt. Pepper, The White Album, Let It Be, Rubber Soul, Abbey Road. Yeah. What else am I missing? <laughs> but my um, my mom passed in in 2020, and so now the Beatles hold an even stronger, more special place in my heart. I I think she gravitated more towards the McCartney songs, as the kind of more trippy Lennon songs weren't really necessarily her cup of tea. Yeah. So whenever I hear Paul's voice, I, I just can't help but think of her. And one cool one cool moment, I I finally got to see McCartney this summer. June of 2022 at my beloved Fenway Park. And I got emotional a bunch of times during the show. So my mom actually uh, in the 60s, late 60s, attended Garland Junior College, a school that would later become what's now known as Simmons College. But her dorm was two blocks away from Fenway. And while I was at the show that night, all I kept thinking was, 
What would she be thinking right now, sitting her dorm in, let's say, 1967, listening to Sergeant Pepper, knowing that her son would be seeing Paul 55 years later, two blocks from where she was sitting? Uh, I, that just, um, I just kept thinking about that all night, and I did some writing about it. It was a great show. Paul played everything, and. I just, I felt a little closer to my mom that night. Again, one of the things, if my mom was here, I would say to her is, Ma, like, thank you for introducing me to them, but like, come on, really? Like, you know, a day in the life, like this later stuff, you know, I can remember her being like, you know, yeah, that's when they really got into the drugs. And I wasn't really into the drugs. So, um, you know, and I can, you know, remember being a little kid just being like, oh, okay, yeah, that must be bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, and I listen to the music and I'm like, this is way better. So yeah. um, I always get a good laugh out of it. Honestly, I just, I, I think every time I really hear Paul's voice, um, it brings me, it br kind of brings me back regardless of whatever song he wrote. I don't know what your, I kind of stole the show on this song, but I wanted to go back to you. What are, what are some of your, your thoughts about, about this song for no one? Well, I feel like this song for no one would be for me kind of in that category of Eleanor Rigby in my life, you know, nowhere, man, those songs yeah. that they just, as soon as I hear them, there's something that happens. I just, it's like in the most sentimental part of my my heart or my gut i don't know but this song and it, it, the arrangement of this is so amazing and you brought out the point with the french horn solo i feel like risk taking and and george like george martin his influence and you know there's a dynamic between john and paul which is unbelievable but there had to be something there too when john was just in the room with george martin or paul was just in the room you know what i mean for some yeah. reason the guy seems to be or any of these guys and i feel like that's just the feel of it you know what i mean totally whole, you know and if you the backstory about you know if he's breaking up with his girlfriend but it's like so that's his personal experience but it's a universal thing there's there's the love that's dying and it's like man how does he do this it's just again what so that would be you know in that section of the the mixed cd or mixtape that would just be like and i as you were talking about the memories that you had with this song and your mom and things like that i can identify with that and i can you know when this song comes on i can remember it's one of those ones that you could remember how you felt the first time you heard it who you were listening to it with or you know the influence so it's that's that's a cool story i'm glad you stole the show on that one that was nice <laughs> yeah it's just and and being at fenway that night too it was just it was really really cool and i was like oh my god i crossed this off my bucket list and i'm really more so now you know crossing things off my my bucket list and I can think of fewer things that make me happier than doing that. So I still got a lot to go, as we all do, probably. But yeah, that one's a special one for sure. Your day breaks, your mind aches. You find that all her words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs you. She wakes up, she makes up. She takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry. She no longer needs you And in her eyes you see nothing No sign of love behind the tears Cried for no one A love that should have lasted years You want her, you need her And yet you don't believe her When she says her love is dead You think she needs you No one, a love that should have lasted years. You stay home. Real quick break to talk about a new edition of the albumreview.net podcast. So, what was your craziest concert experience? Can you think of it? Can you remember it? Is there a concert or a rock show that you've attended any time in your life that you just need to share? 
Well, the albumreview.net podcast is doing a segment called Band Fanatics, where we interview music fans on the podcast as they share their most insane concert experience. So how do you submit your story? Send a message to gpotters at albumreview.net. That's G-P-O-T-T-E-R-S at albumreview.net. Or you can message me directly on Instagram at albumreview.net. Tell us briefly about your crazy concert experience. It can be anything. It just needs to be wild. And we'll get back in touch with you if your story's right for the podcast. Come be a part of the Band Fanatics podcast, part of albumreview.net. Looking to hearing from you guys. I want to talk about what might be, I always battle with this, but it might be my favorite track on Revolver, a song called Dr. Robert. And okay. mostly because I think the best part of not only this song, but the entire album, Jason, is that trippy part of the song when they go into, well, 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 you're feeling fine. Well, 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 he'll make you. Most of the song was written by John, but the band credits, once again, the track to Lennon-McCartney, and it's no secret the song's about drug use. Dr. Robert is the, the doctor that helps you feel fine, sort of giving inspiration to the words like Candyman or Dr. Feelgood, which I couldn't help when I was uh, jotting down some notes for this. Those were terms used for years referencing referencing drug dealers later made more famous by like the Grateful Dead and um, many heavy metal fans or hard rock fans know uh, Dr. Feelgood as a Motley Crue album. But Jason, the, the part where it breaks the well, 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 just never fails to put me in a little itty bitty trance for about three seconds before the song darts back into the, the faster verse and chorus. <laughs> Enjoy the hopping bass line that Paul puts down in the song. I, I can, I can remember being a young bass player, maybe like 13 or 14, and commenting to friends. I was saying, saying this to you earlier, um, how I didn't really feel McCartney was a good bass player; that he was just fair. Um, <laughs> why didn't somebody Will Smith me across the face when they heard me say that? I was so wrong, so wrong. Paul jumps all over the neck of the bass in the song, playing jazzy. And again, I'll say hopping bass lines. He really holds every Beatles song together. And most, most bass players in pop music in this era would just hang on to the major chord until it was time to make the changes. But not Paul. He improvised even during the verse and the chorus. And he always came back to home bass. No pun intended, if you know what I mean. Jay, what are your, what are your thoughts about this song? Well, it's interesting that you pick it as your favorite song on the record. I wouldn't have guessed that. So I'm getting to know you here as we're talking. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just think it, it, and this is another song when I was younger, I never thought about the meaning too much. I mean, it was very, uh, and I feel like it's that hook, you know, well, right. And it, it was always okay. It was like, but then after kind of thinking about it or years go by and it's like, oh, okay, this is really a, you know, um, Got a, a little bit of, of a tougher I feel different. I can just remember like, like, da-da-da-da-da, Beatles song, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, it's so happy and nice and good. Whoa, what's going on here? 
I kind of yeah. feel a little dizzy. I think I kind of need to sit down for a minute and yeah. then boom, right back into it again, kind of like a transition. So yeah, that's what, that's what did it for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got a good, the, the vibe is good. And as far as like, you know, when you're listening to a record, how's the, you know, song sequence exactly hit you right. and it's like placement for no one, you know, and your bird can sing and then for no one, and then Dr. Robert comes out. It's like, Whoa, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not quite as radical as like that first track tax man coming on, but you know, it, it takes it into a, a, a different a completely different vibe there you know what i mean yeah um, totally i kind of look back through some stuff too and it's good that you brought that up because you know the guy that the doctor that supposedly is the you know i don't think john ever did he commit to saying that was the guy but i couldn't find one yeah i actually read that he'd never committed so yeah um, whether but it was factual yeah one of those uh you know during that generation to go around and get all kinds of prescriptions for all kinds of things were, you know, I guess if you had some sort of stature, was it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> exactly. again, yeah. it's like really, um, really something else there. But then the one, the one little write-up that I, I uh, read, it did make reference to the, how witty and how off, you know, you could put those lyrics out there. And as long as you came back to, that the writer said it was almost like a Christmas choir kind of feel like you couldn't feel bad. You know, it was like, yeah. yeah. So pretty genius all around, you know? Yeah. Cause the first time I heard it, I didn't like kind of look under the, the covers or peel back the onion a little bit. And then as I got older and wiser, I was like, wait a minute, Dr. Right. Robert, I know what they're talking about here. I, I mean, I can specifically remember being in the car and making a comment about it. And my dad was like, this is a song about drugs, Greg, like doctor, you know, stuff like Dr. Feelgood, you know? And I was like, what, what about Dr. Feelgood? You know, you, you ragging on Motley Crue too. And he's like, no, it's just that those songs are about drugs. And I'm like, Whoa. So it just, I can remember being in the car and just like looking out the window and being quiet. And it, thankfully it didn't necessarily make me go out and want to try them, but it just made me think like, huh, there's more out there than, you know, there's more meaning behind these lyrics, I guess. So, right. Um, yeah. Being my friend, I said you called out the robber. Day or night, he'll be there anytime at all, Dr. Robert. on uh on dr robert you had some good some good stuff there but i was going to move on to the yeah no, I, yeah apparently this guy was the same doctor if it is the doctor in specific that they they think it is and then he went on to to write a book called what's so bad about feeling good did, did you get to <laughs> i didn't know that? no i didn't catch that and then apparently he was the same physician that thelonious monk and charlie parker uh, uh You'd have to fact check me on that, but that was in one of the little write-up blips that I that I saw. So I thought, whoa, this is uh, you're blending kind of that, you know, those the jazz culture with the with this with the Beatles. It's kind of it was kind of an interesting connect. The closing song on Revolver, "Tomorrow Never Knows," once again follows much of that kind of early psychedelic direction that the Beatles were going. Tomorrow 
I think there's a strong debate here, Jason, that if the band didn't have Paul or George, of course, and his songwriting, their music, it might not have resonated as much with the younger pop crowd, you know, because John's lyrics or John's songwriting is, is I, I think he was a little bit more um, uh, experimental, maybe? Not, not to say that Paul's written songs like, you know, Herman's Hermits, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. I'm not trying to say that. But, like, this is a perfect example of why they're considered the greatest of all time. Lennox, ly Lennox. Lennon's lyrics and songwriting were genius. Yeah, I'm, I'm using the word genius again, but like this is legit. You know, when, when, when those lyrics added with Paul's influences, maybe a bit more, just a bit more melodic. Right. Uh, not that John's were unmelodic or uh, lacked melody, but just uh, they kind of contain more topics about love and women, and then mix that with George's input and his guitar playing. Not to mention Ringo's underrated drumming for that time, really. If you match him up against other drummers at that time that weren't in jazz, you have, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest band of, of all time. I mean, Tomorrow Never Knows, I think, was an early adopter and, and really early influencer in the psychedelic genre. And if you really listen to, like, early Pink Floyd, it's just loaded I'm talking like 67 Pink Floyd, like Piper at the Gates of Dawn. It's just loaded with Beatles influences and sound all over the place. The, the, the song Tomorrow Never Knows also pioneered the use of sampling, Jason, which I didn't really know. Something that the, uh, I do know that obviously sampling was something that the hip hop genre would start doing later in the 1980s. Um, except the Beatles sampled their own music. <laughs> so so the, the song and the whole Revolver album really presented lyrical themes and pop music that advocated for mind expansion and anti-establishment and even Eastern spirituality. Yeah. Um, when, when the album came out, Tomorrow Never Knows was, it was ridiculed by a lot of journalists and even their fans kind of harkening back to what I mentioned earlier in the review about the Beatles actually wanting to alienate their fan base. But in the end, I don't know. I think things worked out. What do you think? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, they had, to, they had to do new things and they were, you know, just products of the life they wanted to live. And I feel like it was a good point that you brought up in terms of the the difference between John's approach to the lyrics and, and the music and uh, Paul. And and I do agree that that bringing that together and then you had, you know, Ringo and George and it's it, I mean, it, that combination could never be duplicated right yeah with this one i will say tomorrow never knows it was just a song that was part of the full record when i listened to it when i was younger it wasn't until i was maybe first year of college that this ended up being like more frequently listened to like i, I kind of it never gets old though it, it because i feel like there's there's so much to it at first even if you don't try to dig in and figure out all the psychedelic references or the what it's trying to say it's just musically just so cool yeah you know it's yeah. like all right here we go now we're on the verge of making sergeant peppers we don't you know as a younger fan of this these guys i never knew that john wasn't getting along with paul and Me you know yeah. right? the perception there is like unless you're really into the history of it you just think man what a collaborative effort for this but um yeah this one gets played or did get played a lot heavy rotation for a while and i feel like as life goes on you start to think this is a john piece but george didn't just dip his toes into the eastern philosophy you know right he went deeper with it than any of the other guys but john was trying to talk about this existentialism and you know he whatever he pulled from that his takeaways turned out to be this and it's like whoa yeah. you know i was just, it, it's so intriguing to me because i was revisiting some of this lately i'm also a big jerry garcia fan and you, you hear references to the the timothy leary and right and and um you know Tibetan Book of the Dead and, and all these different things. You know, sometimes you you do you think of the Beatles. They're they write pop songs, but then in this phase, in this time period, right? And they're still they're trying to figure out what everybody else is doing. Like it's a little past, but at this time in '66, 
some of those other groups that are doing more of this and are just coming on the scene. And I think that him, I, I think those guys are super curious. You know what I mean? They want to be at the parties with the people in the hills. Right. Of, right. Yep. A little bit of a tangent, but no, no, it's, it's true. You're right. And, and again, like, you know, prior to this album, I mean, go, for anyone who's questioning it, go back and listen. I mean, there's some experimental playing, I think on, on rubber soul, but look, I'll be honest when you first said like, yeah, you know, I'd love to review like revolver. Cause I think I said like, Hey Jay, pick an album and let's do it. And then I remember getting off the phone with you and being like, that wouldn't have been my first pick, but you know what? I asked Jay, he recommended it. So I'm going to look. And then dude, I just, I fell back in love with this again. Like, and, and I really, 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 really feel, you know, when Rolling Stone first rated it. And again, we're getting into like arguments about like, Oh, you know, Rolling Stone, this Rolling Stone, that like who could rate a bit, but Rolling Stone put it before in, in their top, you know, their 500 greatest albums of all time. They put revolver before Sergeant pepper and, I thought they were crazy and now I get it. I get why they did it after going through this. So I also read that several, like hundreds of music journalists today have ranked Tomorrow Never Knows in the top 20 songs of the entire 60s decade. Um, Not to mention like the greatest of all Beatles songs, but like just of the whole decade in like the top 20. Uh, So I thought that that was really, really interesting. I think because of the fact that it was the the culture at that point in 66, right? That was just on the verge of making a big pendulum swing there. And then this song comes out. Right. And it, it's making all those references and, and moving people towards looking into this. It definitely had a gigantic impact. Oh, another side tidbit here. I When I was trying to remember, I guess John would always write down little things that Ringo would say. Just little okay. things like Ringo had his own Ringo. Such a smart idea to do stuff Ringo like that. Isms yeah. like type of thing. Right. And Tomorrow Never Knows was just a disconnected like thing that he would say. Down and then really? it turned into being part of the the foundation. Again, this is <laughs> like hey Ringo, like, you know, do you wanna go get uh Yeah. Do you, like, what do you want to do for lunch tomorrow? Like when we meet, cause we got to meet at the studio at 11 o'clock and he would just go tomorrow. Right. I don't know. Yeah. The Ringo accent, but <laughs> you know, I, a couple different things I read said that they, that that was part of it. He would just take little tidbits of things That's that, so cool. that were, he didn't think were cliche. Right. Which is Ringo that would say stuff, you know, right. And, right. And interesting. here i'm a little sad but i know that we have uh uh dinner and families to attend to but before we end it's important to mention there were a few tracks and jason you know this they were recorded for revolver that eventually were left off rain and paperback writer and jason keep me honest again let me know if i'm missing any others but 
these were two examples of these during the mid 60s. I didn't really realize this, Jason, until diving deep into the research of this album. But the Beatles made a habit of releasing singles that included B-sides before the album came out, really to whet the appetite of their fans. Not something that was really done very much when I was a kid. You know, you'd have singles, but and there'd be a B-side on there, but it was from my memory, it was always after the album was, you know, like I can remember, you know, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction and then finding the single to Sweet Child of Mine and there'd be like a B-side to that, but it was always after. This was before. So when the album Revolver was later released, the band apparently didn't want to cheat their fans by making them pay for a song twice, which I thought was kind of cool. So therefore they omitted Rain and Paperback Writer from the album. Cool story about Rain. Rain's a song I heard for the first time when I was at a, 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 a bar, like a club back in 1996 or 97, actually down in North Carolina, uh, not too far from Asheville where we were talking about earlier, Jason. There was a Vermont jam band that I fell in love with that was really big at the time called Strange Folk. If anybody out there wants to, you know, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, huh, who? You can learn more about their album Lore. Lore is part of my Desert Island five record collection. Basically, if you're stranded on a desert island, what five records would you bring? So you can go back and check out my review of Lore uh, at albumreview.net. But I'm embarrassed to admit that for about the first five years after I heard Rain, I Ra Strange Folk played Rain one night at a show down in North Carolina at like some small bar, you know, 50 people. And I was like, man, I love that song. I was in love with the song. A lot like the first time I heard a band, a local band here called The Slip. They played a song called Bouncing Around the Room, <laughs> which many of you may know is a fish song. And I love that. Uh, and I didn't even know. So I w went up to the band and was like, you guys, that last song you played, Bouncing Something, that was amazing. And the guy was like, oh, that's actually a fish song. But I, when I, when I learned that Rain was a Beatles song, uh, I felt a little stupid, <laughs> but my desire to dig deeper into their, you know, their history and their discography, it only strengthened. So the, the coda of Rain, Jason, and includes vocals now. We talked about guitars being recorded backwards. Rain actually includes vocals being recorded backwards, which John noted as the first time the band ever used that technique on a record. I looked up coda and it's defined in the oxford dictionary as the concluding passage of a piece or movement it up and apparently when edited together from John's vocal track the backward part consists of John singing the word sunshine then the word rain which is lengthened this is really cool it's lengthened and then taken from one of the choruses and then those are finally molded together with the song's opening line if the rain comes they run and hide their heads and Ringo noted that out of every Beatles tune rain was his best recorded drum performance so for those of you guys who've never heard it you know listen to it and see if you agree
I don't know, Jason, was Rain ever on your radar? It was, but it was, you know, and I feel like this song with Revolver, like you're saying, because it wasn't part of the actual album package, it was like, I was very familiar with the song, but it was, you know, as as a younger fan, years and years ago, it was like, I never knew exactly the story behind it, but then I just, again, this falls into another john song that seems like it's it, once yeah, it gets in your totally. head you know and there i know there's collaborative efforts for all these but um it was a john it, song you're right you're right yeah yeah but uh the genesis of it yeah can you imagine though i mean having this single go out paperback writer and rain and, and it, rain yeah yeah um, well, i remember like i couldn't when someone told me it was a beatles song and again i went a good like five years thinking it was a strange folk song and then someone was like, no, you idiot, it's a Beatles song. <laughs> and I was like, I was so embarrassed. I played I played in a sandbox with a bunch of people who were like Stones and Beatles fans. And my musical taste at the time was still more like 80s heavy metal, hard rock, and 90s grunge. So again, I had heard tons of Beatles, but I didn't really, I hadn't really matured in my tastes in, in the Beatles. I remember what was so frustrating was I went looking for it. I ended up finding it on, I think it was like anthology or something, yeah. um, but you can hear it on the remix of Revolver that Giles Martin did. You can hear like several different versions. Again, like a early working version, studio outtakes, you know, I just love it. I don't know about you, Jason, but like, I just love hearing like the beginning of a song and then they stop and they start laughing or you can hear somebody in the studio going, John, next time do this, do that. And then you can fast forward or go to, you know, five tracks later where you can actually hear the finished version and just hear how it all came together. I, I love stuff like that. I went looking for rain and I couldn't find it. And then I was flipping through a CD rack one day and I was like, holy mackerel here it is here's rain oh my god and it was on some sort of like random anthology right. compilation or something like that such a great song again and it, it the story behind like john kind of getting addicted to or getting hooked on you know backwards guitar and right it, right you know, doing those the overdubs and the, the backwards vocal and it's like oh man I mean, he was getting himself into some stuff. I don't think he understood that it was going to be as groundbreaking as it was, but I mean, right. I'm, I'm glad you incorporated this song into the, the full review because it's a, it's an outlier, you know, that could have gotten overlooked. Folks that haven't really dug in to this record or maybe they're like we were, maybe that was years ago and then now they're looping back to it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a cool, it's from that time frame. So it's almost like you have to listen to those that song in with in with revolver i think so and i just think it's so it's just so good i mean it's just (laughs) such a that's such a lame way of describing a song but hopefully you know hopefully you can hear my passion (laughs) no it sounds like it's It's just so good why do you like it ah it's just so good you're talking about the government mule covering she said she said and and right band that you were talking about for them to play this i'm thinking wow that's a bold a statement from the band that you were listening strange to. folk yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's just it's oh. yeah the the album in many you know the album revolver in many critics minds like i was saying earlier jason has really surpassed sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band um as the best the best beatles album and i i think you know again this is sort of open for debate but i really wanted to review revolver after jason recommended it i wanted to review it because i think what it does have over sergeant pepper is is order but also it because it was first or it was before sergeant pepper it influenced more future artists to copy or emulate the style for later records including the fact that it then later influenced the Beatles themselves, right? It was Brian Wilson who said that he wrote Pet Sounds because he heard Rubber Soul. And the Beatles said that they wrote Sgt. Pepper's because they heard Pet Sounds. So it's like this. I remember hearing a uh, an artist years ago talk about this circle of energy. And I, I can't remember who the damn artist was, but it was like, 
we are on stage and we give our music gives the fans energy it's going to come to me in a minute who it was and then the fans feed off of that and spit the energy back at us and therefore that gives us more energy so that we get more energetic and crazier and then that spits back to them and it's just this constant flow and circle this loop of, of energy that goes around and around and around and around. And as we build, they build. And as they build more, we build more. And you could argue it's kind of like a snowball effect. Interestingly enough, the Beatles, Jason, I didn't know this. They didn't perform any of the songs from Revolver during their U.S. tour in August of 66. And this was, I'm guessing, this is just my thought, that maybe it's because most of the tracks with their heavy experimental and studio production quality would have been you know, pretty difficult to replicate in concert. But I think this was really the very beginning. I shouldn't say I think this really was the very beginning of the end of touring for the Beatles. Uh, like I said earlier, their last official concert was played at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. And I looked up the date, August 29th, 1966. And the only other time that they would play together in front of an audience outside of the studio, of course, was... Do you remember? It was the roof of the rooftop. Yeah. You got yep. it. Yep. The rooftop at Apple. It was Apple Studios in yep. January of 69, which you can all see if you go watch Let It Be, which is on, I think, Disney Plus. By late 66, the band's attitude towards touring. <laughs> the freaking band thought that touring was fruitless and they had to admit to themselves as lame as it might sound, they'd gotten too popular and they were way too big to tour anymore, which... Jason, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's ever going to happen to another band as long as we're still alive. No. Like, who's ever going to say again, like, we're too big, like, we can't tour. I guess, you know, now that we're talking about this today, and forgive me for some of you out there that might think this is blasphemous, but just recently as, what was it, like a week ago, something very interesting in the music industry happened, which I think is relevant to mention. The, pretty much the monopoly, the largest concert ticket provider in the, in the, the country or maybe even the world ticketmaster live nation their their system crashed uh because too many people were trying to get taylor swift tickets yeah i don't think taylor swift is ever going to be too big to tour but i really didn't understand the depth or the level of how big they had gotten and was kind of like how did they stay so popular again this was like 30 years ago i'm thinking this thought how did the beatles stay so popular when they were like Hey, we're done touring. It was like right. nowadays, you know, you hear any band say, I got to tour. I got to get out there. I got to tour. I got to do this. I got to get my music out there. I got to get my music out there. The Beatles didn't need to do that, man. No. <laughs> well, we're done. Masterful in the studio and just all that, all that creative energy and all those songs keep on, they kept putting them out there for a little while. I mean, yeah. the body of work for the amount of time that they did it is, is mind boggling you know and that's back in the day too when they were first starting that they were doing two or sometimes more records a, a year right you know right about an incredible output of songs there was a something i saw was a lennon interview and he just said that it, it just became they couldn't no one was listening it was just too chaotic and too they didn't have the pa or the they sound feared for their safety too but yeah you're right the um uh, you bring up a great point. I think their show at Shea and even Candlestick, uh, this is for even medium Beatles fans, this is kind of common knowledge now, that they were literally played, they played their instruments through the PA at the ballpark. Right. Which was yeah. like a joke. And people were who were at the shows said that they couldn't even hear them, couldn't even hear the, the music. Right, you just hear screaming, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but as I dug deeper, I realized I'm like, yeah, it made perfect sense. And then they could really just devote all their time to writing and working in the studio. And I think that's why that rooftop concert is just so special. So much more special than I first realized. So for those of you guys out there that want to geek out on the Beatles, start with Revolver, then work your way forward to Sgt. Pepper's and so on and so forth. I'm not recommending you skip other albums entirely, but Revolver, and I think Jason would agree, this one is special. And I think that's why George Martin's son, Giles, decided to remix it. Well, thanks for indulging me on this. It meant a lot to me. Uh, and I appreciate the amount of 
what this pushed me to do was revisit like my memories from when I, you know, cause there's different phases of my listening with, with these records. So now I have kids that are listening to this, you know That's what so I mean? Cool. But then to revisit this and kind of look at some of the backstories and the songwriting things that were going on, it was, it was cool for me to do this. And I'm glad that you were into uh, doing a review on this. Hopefully it's, it's well received and i know that we'll probably have some corrections of people you know they get through it and always but i'm i'm a student of the game you know what i mean like i'll never uh get tired of 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 learning thanks for listening to part two of this two-part review jason myrick and i talking about the beatles 1966 trailblazing work of genius revolver And thanks to Jason again for joining me. Just a reminder, you can listen to Jason's music on your favorite platform wherever you get your music. Jason's most recent album, Best Way to Be Free, which you need to check out. His last name is spelled M-I-R-E-K, and you can find his music on all platforms. A few housekeeping items. If you are interested in any of the books or albums that I've discussed in this episode or previous episodes, Go to albumreview.net and pick up a copy of your own. Listen to all my podcast album reviews at albumreview.net by clicking on the podcast tab. They can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. So please follow the show on your preferred platform so you can get regular updates on new episodes. Also, if you guys would be so kind as to pop a quick review or rate the podcast, that helps move the needle and get the word out there. I do want to hear from you guys, so please email me your feedback, album review requests, and any questions you may have to gpotters at albumreview.net. That's G-P-O-T-T-E-R-S at albumreview.net. If you'd like to get regular updates on reviews, interviews, product reviews, and music news, Go to the homepage and join the mailing list. Stay tuned for updates on Instagram and Facebook. As of November of 2022, we are now on TikTok, and you can find me at albumreview.net. Thanks, guys. Keep listening, keep reading, and keep fighting. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Take a trip down by the highway 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 Take a trip down by